Welcome to Catholic Living, a podcast that seeks to be a user's guide to the Catholic faith, where we boldly ask, what if this stuff is all true? How then should we live? This is brought to you by Ex Corde at Benedictine College in Atchison, Kansas. I'm Tom Hoops. I'm writer-in-residence here at the college. You can read what I write at alatea.org and excorde.org. Today I want to bring you a hopeful pro-life message. It seems almost too terrible to be true sometimes. In our culture, many infants' lives are snuffed out in their mother's wombs for profits by a big industry protected by politicians it donates money to. But it cannot last. Human societies may find a way to sanction horrific practices for a time, but when enough people insist on the truth and refuse to back down, evil inevitably falls. And it is starting its fall already today. The Supreme Court is still looking at Texas's law and a decision that could make a huge impact. A Catholic vote headline in 2022 says pro-life fervor spreads through states. It says pro-life lawmakers in a number of states are calling for laws similar to Texas's heartbeat law. And quote, bills with language similar or identical to the Texas law have been introduced in Alabama, Florida, Missouri, and Ohio so far. The Ohio version would virtually outlaw all abortions. It's inevitable. The pro-life train may be slow, but it's going to keep coming. Science will keep convincing us of the humanity of the unborn, because researchers today know more about an embryo from her DNA than they knew about anybody 100 years ago. We're living in an age of fetal surgery, where we can solve many unborn children's problems right there in the womb. Technology will keep converting people, because ultrasounds aren't going away, and even though the media won't show an abortion on TV or share straightforward information about it openly, the game is up. The abortion industry can't hide the humanity of the unborn anymore. Women who have had abortions won't let the issue die because they are in pain and they are angry that they were lied to and they want to save other women from their fate. And we live in an age where there are people walking around with us who, for one reason or another, were almost aborted but survived. And what's more, if you go to the March for Life, you'll see that the pro-life movement is a youth movement. We're not talking about the closely held beliefs of a dying generation. We're talking about the vigorous beliefs of a young generation. Uh, I remember one Washington Post reporter, after having ignored the march for years, actually went down to watch it. And he said, I went to the March for Life rally Friday at the mall expecting to write about its irrelevance. How wrong I was. The anti-abortion movement feels it's gaining strength. Roe supporters, including me, are justifiably nervous. I was especially struck by the large number of young people among the tens of thousands at the march. There's also a report that a Planned Parenthood executive who had avoided the mall her whole life during the March for Life accidentally got off on the metro station near the mall during the march and saw all the marchers. There are so many, she said. They are so young. So pro-life isn't going away. America is going to become more and more pro-life. And what will that mean for our society? Well, the truth is, becoming pro-life transforms people in many, many ways. We all know example in our own lives. Maybe you are the example in your own life of how someone goes from pro-choice to pro-life and their whole worldview changes. That happened to me in high school. As part of our health class, a Planned Parenthood representative came and spent a class period with us, and by the end had convinced everybody that we should be pro-choice. Well, because of Arizona law at the time, 
a pro-life representative came in the very next day and spent a class period describing their point of view. And after that class, every one of us was pro-life. Because this is what happens with becoming pro-life. It undermines moral relativism. Once you realize that calling it pro-choice doesn't magically make killing okay, you start asking uncomfortable questions about what other moral truths our culture might be wrong about. I'll never forget the time I embraced the right to life. I was thinking about all these arguments from the pro-choice and the pro-abortion side, sitting on my back porch, and I thought, you know what? I can't tell. Who am I to say what's right and wrong? I might as well be pro-choice. And then it occurred to me that if I couldn't say what was right or wrong, I couldn't say MLK was right. I couldn't say that the Nazis were wrong. And I suddenly got the conviction that, okay, I can say what's right and wrong, and killing children in the womb is unquestionably wrong. So becoming pro-life wiped out moral relativism in my life. Well, becoming pro-life also teaches you the virtue of faith. Once you accept the importance of babies you can't see, you start to wonder what other important unseen things you are missing, like God, for instance. For me, I am certain that accepting that right and wrong were possible laid the groundwork I needed to believe in God again. In fact, the first time I prayed the rosary was at an abortion clinic. The pro-life movement was my formation station for my re-entry into the faith. Well, if becoming pro-life teaches you faith, it also teaches you hope. The pro-choice argument depends on despair. It says that it would be so terrible for a mother to bring her child into the world that she might as well kill it. Once you see through that, you start to trust God's care for the universe in a lot of other ways also. So many philosophies of despair about overpopulation grew up around the time abortion became legal. John Malthus, for instance, said we would run out of food, there would be wide mass starvation, but human ingenuity and divine providence proved him wrong. Many countries were convinced that they had to limit their births severely to survive. Now they're realizing that their populations are disappearing from being so far below zero population growth that governments are trying to find ways to promote birth. So becoming pro-life teaches you faith, it teaches you hope, it also teaches you to love. The destruction of an unborn child is a grave sin against love. And repentance from abortion is a great builder of love. As Jesus said in Luke chapter 7, her many sins have been forgiven, hence she has shown great love. And pro-lifers have not just opposed abortion, they have learned to love to serve unwed mothers. It's a lie that pro-lifers only care about pre-born people. Pro-life pregnancy centers have been serving moms in tough spots for decades. I remember my own mother would take me on the weekends to a special giving box by the church, and she would always say, we need to help the unwed mothers. The church has been a real entrepreneur in finding service for people in a tough way because of pregnancy. Of course, becoming pro-life also changes people's politics. The right to life is the mother of all non-negotiable issues. Melinda Hennenberger wrote in a 2007 op-ed in the New York Times, that pro-choice is a bad choice for Democrats. In it, she described the pro-life Democrats she interviewed in her research who found it impossible to vote for abortion supporters. Quote, many of them, Catholic women in particular, are liberal, deep in their heart Democrats, who support social spending, who oppose the war from the start, and who cross their arms over their chests reflexively when they hear the word Republican, she said. 
Some could fairly be described as desperate to find a way home, end quote. The National Catholic Register published an article just a couple weeks ago in January 2022 about Aaron Oliver, a Democratic municipal chairman in his New Jersey hometown, who is scorned by other Democrats, said the article. Why? Because he's pro-life. He's an Episcopal priest and a New Jersey Army National Guard chaplain, and he says he's faithful to the Democratic Party in every other respect. He says, I am a loyal Democrat, a lifetime Democrat. Many of us think that there's not an inconsistency with being pro-life and a Democrat. We think the party should be an open tent that it claims to be, end quote. Dan Lipinski is another great example of a great pro-life Democrat, and there are more at democratsforlife.org. And that's another thing about my mom. She was from Mexico, and she was a lifelong committed Democrat. And she cried, actually, when she heard that one of her children was working for a Republican. But being a Democrat meant that we got a lot of literature from pro-abortion groups mailed to our house. My mom would have me print out lots of paper from our dot matrix printer to put in the return envelopes to send back to the pro-abortion groups. And her idea was by overloading these envelopes, they would cost a lot of money in postage to the group when it arrived. So I'd print out reams of pro-life slogans like, as a former fetus, I oppose abortion, or you were once an unborn baby too, and pack them in there. Well, it's really hard to be a pro-life Democrat, though. Pope Francis called abortion the preeminent political issue in America. Archbishop Dowman said that the Holy Father was shocked when he told him the sheer number of abortions in the United States. He agrees with U.S. bishops that no issue trumps the abortion industry killing for profit on such a massive scale. Now, apart from politics, I think becoming pro-life changes your whole understanding of your political life, your life as a citizenship as well. First, becoming pro-life teaches you that rights don't come from the state, but somewhere above the state, and that the government exists to protect those rights. In order to kill a child in the womb, you have to decide that the state can give you permission to treat humanity in a way you know is wrong. When you become pro-life, your universe gets put back into order. Second, uh, becoming pro-life teaches you that people have duties and responsibilities and not just rights. In order to be for abortion, you have to allow your right to choose to win out over another person's right to life, and you have to make what I am owed greater than what I owe. To become pro-life is to discover that we live not just for ourselves, but for others. And so it is that I believe not only that America is becoming more pro-life, but that this is going to change us in fundamental ways. So it is that Americans are souring to abortion. In May 2009, a Gallup headline said, more Americans are pro-life than pro-choice for the first time ever. In May 2012, a Gallup headline was, pro-choice Americans are at a record low. However, if you look at the Gallup poll and you see the lines of people claiming to be pro-choice and pro-life, they switch back and forth for the past several years. And currently, the pro-choice line is winning out over the pro-life line. But the title of the Gallup story this year was 47% of Americans think abortion is morally acceptable. Okay, so if only 47% of Americans think abortion is morally acceptable... That means something significant, I think. More people are likely to tell the pollster, yeah, whatever, it's acceptable, than are likely to tell the pollster the 
politically incorrect statement. No, I think something is morally unacceptable. So I think the numbers may be even higher than what the polls claim. So the number keeps going back and forth, but what you've got to realize is that what we want is not a majority who believe in the right to life, but the tipping point. So you have to understand how the tipping point works. If you've read Malcolm Gladwell on the tipping point, he points out that it's not having a bare majority that transforms a culture, and it's not having absolutely everybody on board that transforms a culture. It's having about 56%. So if you look at the days of civil rights, civil rights for blacks were debatable as people were going back and forth until about 56% of the people said, forget it, we definitely need to do something significant for civil rights in America. Once you reach 56%, it's unthinkable that you would have any belief but the majority opinion. So we need to keep pushing support for right to life to where it gets to 56%. And then suddenly you'll see people saying the culture transformed overnight when we know that it took years. So we need to keep pushing because these gains are happening despite the fact that pro-abortionists have changed the very terms of the debate turning the killing of children into women's health and have captured virtually every public institution. Public schools, universities, and the media are so pro-abortion that they reflexively cover up what abortion does to unborn children and women, carefully projecting a sunny lie that benefits the abortion industry. I think we can get a lot of hope in the pro-life movement from the anti-racist movement. I love how Gloria Purvis, who recently came to campus here at Benedictine College, relentlessly points out that racism is a life issue and how many people are picking up on that. Archbishop Nauman here in the Archdiocese of Kansas City uh, made that same point in his recent column, which you can find at Ex Corde. I wrote an article for the National Catholic Register called What Black Lives Matter Can Learn from Pro-Lifers. What I tried to do there was look at some of the big names in the anti-racist movement and see the kinds of arguments they're making and compare them to the kinds of arguments that the pro-life movement makes. So see what you think of this. I like how ta Coates powerfully put the case for anti-racism in Between the World and Me, his book. He objected to the way language talks about slavery, calling people slaves. He said, quote, slavery is not an undefinable mass of flesh. It is a particular specific enslaved woman whose mind is as active as your own, whose range of feeling is as vast as your own, who prefers the way the light falls in one particular spot in the woods, who enjoys fishing where the water eddies in a nearby stream, who loves her mother in her own complicated way, thinks her sister talks too loud, has a favorite cousin, a favorite season, who excels at dressmaking and knows inside herself that she is as intelligent and capable as anyone. Don't call them slaves, he says. Call them enslaved people. Well, pro-lifers agree, because we're tired of unborn children being called products of conception, embryos, or fetuses. Call them unborn children. At the earliest stage, an embryo is already a human being with his or her own set of DNA, sex, and life expectancy. Then, as she develops in the womb, she hears songs, suffers pain, and starts to learn. She has a face, fingernails, and feelings. When she is painfully burned, ripped to shreds, or cut to pieces in the womb, it isn't the termination of a pregnancy, it's the execution of an innocent. It is also helpful that the anti-racist movement is making us focus on the founding fathers. Anti-racists are tired of the racial hypocrisy of Americans. In Stand from the Beginning, Ibram Kendi traces that hypocrisy 
and is particularly incensed by Thomas Jefferson and the Declaration of Independence. Jefferson said, all of us are created equal with the rights to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Kendi asks, what did it mean for Jefferson to call liberty an inalienable right when he enslaved people? Well, that's an excellent question. Pro-lifers agree. We wonder why pro-choicers think they have any more integrity than Jefferson when they deny the inalienable right to life of the unborn. Anti-racist leaders from Frederick Douglass to Martin Luther King and Polly Murray all believed that the principles of the Declaration of Independence, hypocritical or not, eventually ended slavery. We believe they will also end abortion. Another thing we can learn from anti-racism is a point ta Coates made in The Atlantic. He says, the biological theories about black people were defeated because they were bad science. There is a tangible scientific answer to the question of whether blacks are homo sapiens. But then he goes on to say, is there really a scientific answer to whether life begins at conception? Well, yes, there is. Exactly the same DNA science that shows his humanity and mine shows the humanity of the unborn. Here in Atchison, we have two very important memorial markers. One is remembering a local victim of a lynching. This is vitally important for us to acknowledge the horrors of racism and beg forgiveness. People want to move on, but you can't move on without first doing that. The memorial for the unborn is the other one, and it's right here on our campus at Benedictine College. It remembers the current victims of the abortion industry destroyed in their mother's wombs for profit. Racism is a life issue. The unborn marker would be incomplete without the lynching memorial. And at the same time, the lynching marker would be incomplete without the unborn memorial. Your pro-life sentiments are hollow if you are unwilling to stand against racism. And your anti-racist sentiments are hollow if you are unwilling to stand for the right to life of your brothers and sisters whose very lives are being destroyed by the abortion industry today. Pro-lifers must stand against racism and for the unborn, and we do. One other reason we can have hope for the pro-life future is that we pro-lifers will not go away. Many people wish we would, and heaven knows we would rather be doing almost anything else besides marching in the cold. But we can't go away, and we won't. You may have seen us in the life chain with our abortion kills children signs. You may have seen us outside your local Planned Parenthood praying the rosary. You may have seen a college kid in sweats, an old man, and a sad-looking woman clutching brochures and holding an I regret my abortion sign. Well, that was us. That was the pro-life movement. Maybe you felt offended that we stuck the abortion issue in your face as you ran errands. Well, we felt offended that the abortion businesses are getting rich off of women's pain in our own neighborhoods. We wanted to enjoy ourselves, too. Or maybe you heard one of us at a town meeting you attended at the school or the senior center. Maybe it was a savvy young woman lawyer who you heard voice the pro-life argument. Or maybe the voice of the pro-life movement that you heard was halting, nervous, a little too angry, with words a little too tangled. In either case, that was us in the pro-life movement also. Maybe that made you uncomfortable. We're sorry for that. But we'll be there again at the next town meeting too, and the next, and the next. We won't go away, and we won't stop talking about abortion. We won't stop saying again and again that this is wrong and it has to stop. Through biology, we know more than ever that abortion kills children. And through neurology, we know more than ever that abortion hurts women. Those who have had abortions know the guilt of what was done and the anger of those who made it seem inevitable, who refused any help but the kind that kills. 
Those of us who have a friend who has had an abortion know it is a topic that we must never, ever discuss. It causes too much sadness, inflicts too much pain that can't be relieved. We all know what abortion is and what it does. And we pro-lifers won't stand by and pretend with you that nothing is happening. We won't go away because we can't make abortion go away from our own consciences. Is abortion necessary for women's rights? Ask the teens impregnated by older men and brought to the clinic by them too. Is it a matter of choice? Ask the woman who wanted to have their baby but were badgered and pressured and tricked into killing the baby instead. But doesn't abortion help women? Ask the ones who were irreparably wounded or even died on the operating tables, or the ones who are physically fine but wish they had died because the depression is too much to bear. What would America be like without abortion? We can't even imagine. In It's a Wonderful Life, George Bailey gets a glimpse of what Bedford Falls would be like if he hadn't been born. But then he returns to a world where that tragedy never happened. We don't get to return to a world we could have had. Did we abort a statesman who would have changed the course of our country? Did we abort the musician who would have taken that art and our emotions with it to new heights? What cures, stories, jokes, athletic feats, or technological innovations did we abort? What great actor is missing from our movies? What great teachers will never inspire our kids? No, pro-lifers won't shut up and we won't go away, no matter how much people may want us to, or how much we may want to go. We want to think that if we were there, we would have told the slave traders, no way, not here, I will use every legal means to stop you. We like to think that we wouldn't have sat still in World War II Germany as the trains rumbled by. We wish we could have sat with Rosa Parks or prayed with Ruby Bridges on their way to school. But we can't do any of that. What we can do is remind America, in season and out of season, of the words of its founding, that all men are endowed by their Creator with the right to life. So, you'll see us shivering in the cold again this January for the March for Life, and you'll see us next January, and the January after that, and the January after that, until we wear you down at last, and there's no more reason to march. And if we die before this horrific abortion industry is ended, we will be able to stand before God and say, I defended the defenseless. I stood for the weak. My unborn brothers and sisters couldn't cry stop, so I cried it for them, and I refused to go away. Thanks for listening. I'm Tom Hoops, and this is the Catholic Living Podcast, produced by Ex Corde at Benedictine College in Atchison, Kansas. Our mission is to produce media that will transform culture in America through Benedictine's mission of community, faith, and scholarship. Visit us at excorde.org.